0: Please remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke, chapter 18. Our opening reading this morning will be verses 18 through 27. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that, he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now, Psalm 127, 3 and 4 says
1: this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And when we think of children... There is so many reasons why we love them, um, and they are recipients of our love. If you think about the normal procedure that someone goes through, and in particular the, the Burger family as they go through it now, you sort of have the longing to have a family. Then comes the day when you find out, in fact... You're expecting, you then go through the excitement of, of, of announcing it to family and friends. You then go and have the baby shower, decorate the room, have the ultrasound, discover the gender, and then you finally get to welcome that little one into the world. You hold it for the first time. I remember holding Malachi when he was first born, and for the first 40 minutes of his life, he screamed, literally. <laughs> and um, even that was a mark of what his personality would be like, and um, it's kind of <laughs> held true. And the thing about children that I think draws to them is that they're so trusting, forgiving, wonder-filled, that the smallest things capture their imaginations. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Little things are are so profound to them. They're fun-loving, they have short memories, they're uninhibited. Notice how small children stare at you, but they don't know the social faux pas of staring too long. And they just continue to look at you, and longer, until you feel uncomfortable, and you're the one that looks away. Because you somehow are wondering what is going on here. And they also don't have very much pretense. that They just tell you what they think. They, they call it like they see it. They begin to crawl, walk, talk, run. Then they run you around. The laughter and memories they create. First day of school, learning to ride a bike. For Malachi, that was April 23rd of this year. And I think I was more excited than he was first little league game, first date, graduating high school, college, wedding, grandchildren, all these things that we anticipate as parents. But we live in a fallen world, and we live in a world where children are not only recipients of love, they're recipients of our frustration at times. Even as I prepared for this sermon, a number of times a little hand would knock on the door and, Daddy, are you in there? Are you in there? And so as to not be a hypocrite and be convicted right there on the spot, <laughs> I open the door, I let the little one come into my lap and, you know, hang out for a few minutes and then try to kindly send him or her along. Obviously, children, they upset our sleep patterns. They, they upset a lot of things that we are commonly um, comfortable with when we are single and don't have children. But not only are they the recipients of our love, they're also recipients of neglect did some research, and in 2007 alone, there were 900,000 cases of neglect reported in this country. And one thing about these statistics are that those are only the reported ones. To get a true assessment of what's happening out there, we would have to multiply this by two, three, maybe four times. And so what does it mean if you're a recipient of neglect? Physically, it means that your basic necessities aren't being met. Food, clothing, shelter. In terms of education, it's, it's a failure to enroll your child in mandatory schooling. Emotional, meaning exposure to chronic or extreme spousal abuse, allowing a child to use drugs or alcohol, refusing or failing to provide the care that they need, ignoring, a consistent failure to respond to the child's need for stimulation, rejecting, a parent actively refusing to show affection or provide for their little one, terrorizing, threatening child with extreme punishment or creating a climate of terror by playing on their childhood fears. Corrupting, encouraging a child to engage in destructive, illegal, or antisocial behavior. Medical, refusing medical care for a child in an emergency or acute illness. Compounding a condition that could have readily been resolved. Not only are they recipients of love, they're also the recipients of abuse. Abuse. Over 3 million cases annually are reported of child abuse in this country. In 2007, 5.8 million children were involved in 3.2 million abuse reports or allegations. That means that there's a report every 10 seconds, and that means that five children die every day from abuse in this country. Three out of four are under the age of four. Four. 60 to 85% of child fatalities are due to maltreatment, but it's never recorded as such on their death certificate. 90% of sexual abuse victims knew the perpetrator. 68% were abused by their own family. 31% of women in U.S. prisons were abused as children. And 60% of people in drug rehabilitation centers report being abused or neglected as children. And about 30% of abused and neglected children will later abuse their own children. The estimated annual cost of child abuse and neglect in the United States for 2007 alone was $104 billion. Maybe you can put a price on sin. Children are also recipients of revenge. I read of a story earlier this year. A dad in Brazil wanted to get revenge on the mom. So he did that by giving alcohol to his toddler, and then inserting two to three-inch needles throughout his body. This happened on several occasions. The mom couldn't figure out why the toddler was in so much discomfort and constant shouts and whatnot, so they took him to the doctor. They did an x-ray, and there was the evidence. They're also recipients of sexual exploitation. Srey, a six-year-old girl, was a... uh, victim of Cambodia's sex industry. And the article says that at an age when most children might be preparing for their first day of school, Srey, six, already had undergone trauma that is almost unspeakable. She had been sold to a brothel by her parents at age five for probably 100 bucks and was abused from pimp to pimp, from sex tourist to sex tourist as they came to partake in their sin and wretchedness. The article goes on to say that Srey would be passed from one man to one man, often drugged to make her compliant. Srey was a commodity at the heart of a massive, multi-million dollar sex industry in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Now, Srey was rescued by a lady named Somali Mam, a former prostitute who runs shelters for these victims there. To date, she's rescued 53 children. A lot of them, when they arrive, she says, have psychological problems, very big problems. And they never have the love of the people, their parents. And one girl at the shelter was rescued after having been in prison for two years in a cage, repeatedly raped. It's not just abroad. Here in the U.S., human trafficking is an increasing problem. There's a child sex trade, and about a hundred American-born children are forced into the sex trade in Ohio alone every year. Some of the pictures that I saw of these children as I was doing research, being in kennels, and and there's this one haunting picture that will just forever be seared on my mind. Children are also recipients of pre-birth murder, politically correctly dubbed abortion, and abortion is allowed if a pregnancy has adverse effects on the mental health and well-being of the mother up to the 24th week of pregnancy, six months. After six months, the procedure is sanctioned only if a baby has a severe disability or the mother's life is at risk. But a serious disability is considered Down syndrome. So if you look at the statistics, you'll notice an interesting phenomenon. There are less and less people with Down syndrome in our culture today. That is not an accident. However, most abortions aren't for those reasons at all. They're mostly for unhealthy babies for social reasons. Shame, finances, relationship status, the place in life that they find themselves. And so to that tune, 3,000 babies are killed every day in America and 130,000 worldwide every day. However, the saddest thing of this is when I came across a report that said one in 30 aborted babies actually is born alive. Most are 20 to 24 weeks, but some as young as 17 weeks. And currently, doctors in one British hospital are treating a toddler born at 24 weeks after three botched abortions. He was born three years ago and is still alive. To make it more personal, there's a lady by the name of Gianna Jensen. Her mother aborted her at seven and a half months by saline injection. The problem was she didn't die. 18 hours later, she was born with cerebral palsy because of the lack of oxygen that the saline injection um, caused inside the womb. And doctors said she'll never crawl, she'll never sit up unaided, she'll never stand, much less walk or run. Well, since she's ran a marathon, is an accomplished singer and writer, and travels the world to campaign against abortion. Gianna says she doesn't know why her natural mother chose to abort her. But she says this, if abortion is about women's rights, then where were my rights? No decision is solely yours to make. All decisions affect another human being, whether it is for good or for ill. If people are going to talk about abortion, then it's important for them to know that these babies can be born alive and survive. To take it on a global scale, there's something called gender side happening in Asia. Countries like China, Taiwan, Singapore. They have things like the one-child policy. And so what happens is for $12, you get an ultrasound. And if you find out it's not a boy, you just try again. And this has been going on for 30 years in one shape or form. So now there's a, there's a statistic that 100 million girls have been killed, aborted, or neglected, or just disappeared in Asia. Now what's happening is you've got these disproportionate ratios of boys to girls And you've got people holding to attitudes like in India where they say they love the moms, they just don't like the girls. But the folly of that logic is, who is going to bear the next generation of boys if you have no girls? Sin deceives you, doesn't it? And there's also recipients of post-birth murder. On March 3rd of 2010, a dead newborn baby was discovered in a trash collector in a household bin on a residential street in Redondo Beach. Later that day, they they arrested uh, Jessie Lauren Canfield in Santa Barbara. Allegedly, she had attended a party that weekend at that house, complained of cramps, in actuality delivered a baby, threw it in the dumpster and went home. Now, I could give you story after story portraying how children are exploited. But the question that we want to ask ourselves is this How do you go from loving a child to loathing a child? How do you go from expecting joyfully the birth of a new child to executing it? How do you go from excitement to endangerment when it comes to a small child? And I would suggest this to you, if you know the answer to this question, then you understand salvation. If you understand what it is that drives people to do this to small children, then you will understand what it means to be saved. Now you may be thinking, well, what what do you mean by that? Well, let me start off by saying this, children are the perfect victim. For anybody who wants to harm anybody, go after a small child. Why? They're naive completely trusting, quickly forgiving. They'll literally follow you to their death. They'll never question your motives. They're defenseless. What's a five-year-old going to do against an adult? An adult is stronger, faster, smarter, tougher. Can't fight back. Easy prey. And children are dependent. They're completely reliant on their parents for their physical well-being, their emotional well-being, and their mental well-being. You can abuse them and they can't go anywhere. They gotta come right back to you. Where are they gonna go? But here's the thing, and here's the point of this passage. If you get this now, you will understand the passage we're gonna look at. And this is what it is. What makes for the ultimate combination of weakness in the kingdom of man makes for the essential prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. What makes for the ultimate combination of weakness And this earth, on this kingdom, makes for the essential prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God. Our passage reveals this truth clearly, unequivocally. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Mark chapter 10, 13 and 16. It's a passage that Matthew has in his gospel and that Luke has in his as well. And this is what Mark documents in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on the gospel of Mark. The author is John Mark, cousin of Barnabas, close companion to Peter. John Mark is the one who abandoned Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. And Mark's desire to accompany Paul on his second missionary journey was a cause of conflict between Paul and Barnabas, leading to a separate going of ways but which ultimately God used to further spread his gospel. Now over time, Mark matured and regained his favor in Paul's eyes and he would even return to faithful service and part of that may have been because Peter's care for him. Now Peter knew about failure, didn't he? And so Peter probably took Mark under his wing and, and shepherded him and mentored him and brought him to a point where he could fully be trusted as a servant of the Most High. And the audience of this gospel are Roman believers, Gentiles specifically. Jesus here is presented as the suffering servant of the Lord. And if you want to understand the gospel of Mark, meditate, study one verse. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The emphasis of this gospel is more on the deeds, not as much as the teaching. It's a quick account from one scene to another, constantly moving the gospel account along. And the context, the first seven chapters document the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and in the surrounding regions. Chapters 8 and 9 show that Jesus' ministry is beginning to expand outside to other Gentile regions. And chapter 10 marks the beginning of the end for Jesus. Chapter 10 marks his beginning on the road to Jerusalem where he will ultimately be tried, crucified, and resurrected. And in the first 12 verses of this chapter, Jesus teaches on divorce, then blesses the children, confronts the rich young ruler, confirms the disciples' rewards, prepares the disciples for his death, challenges the disciples to humble service, and ends by healing a blind man. And with that, to hang your thoughts, four things you can do to kind of outline this is see verse 13 as a human assessment of children, i.e., a wrong assessment. Verse 14, a divine assessment of children, a right assessment. 15, an eternal lesson through children, a spiritual lesson, a salvific lesson. Verse 16, a temporal lesson through children, or an earthly one. Now look with me at verse 13 a human assessment of children. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Now imagine the scene. Jesus' ministry has reached a climax in terms of popularity at this point. There are a thousand in attendance literally waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say, looking for what Jesus might do. It's a a mix of people, uh, including the thrill seekers, including children, including the Pharisees that are constantly plotting against Jesus and hoping that they might catch Jesus saying something that they can incriminate him with. And so amidst this throng of people pressing on him, trying to get to him, it says that certain families, parents, were bringing children to Jesus, now the word here, children, what it's referring to is a child anywhere from the age of 12 to 8 days. Children, small children, toddlers, infants. And it says that he might touch them. Touch is another way of saying that he might bless the children. It was a rabbinical tradition common in first century Judaism. Judaism. You could trace his lineage back to Genesis 48, 14, where Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh to Israel for a blessing. It was something you did. Rabbis just did this. You saw the child, you picked it up, you blessed it. But it says here, and the disciples rebuke them, them being the parents, them being the children. They appraised him. They charge someone as being blamable. They strongly admonish them. They threaten them. Get away from Jesus. Take your kids. Step away. Now you can understand a little bit of what the disciples are doing. With a throng of people this large, they're keeping people from pressing on Jesus so that he's not overwhelmed and can teach They're also keeping watch on those plotting Pharisees that are dispersed in their midst and are just hoping that today might be the day that they'll catch Jesus in some type of crime. And quite frankly, the disciples probably see the children as taking time away from Jesus' main work, his main priority. It's nothing personal, right? We're not gonna harm the kids. They're cute, we like them. But quite frankly, Jesus has bigger fish to fry today. And it's hard to argue with the disciples. I mean, just consider the history. In the patriarchal period, kids were sold as concubines. We read about that in Exodus 21. Children were sold to pay off debts in Second Kings and Nehemiah 5. They were even sacrificed. Listen to Second Kings 17.31. And the Avites made Niphas and Tartak. <clears throat> and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephirvayim. And Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 20, and you took your sons and da- your daughters, whom you had born to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? The first century Greco-Roman world was really no different. On June 17th, 1 BC, a letter was found written on papyrus from a man by the name of Hilarion, and he was writing to his expectant wife. And he writes this, Alice, if it would be a male child, let it live. If it would be a female, cast it out. Now, what was happening at this time is that unwanted babies would be thrown into open fields. And... One thing or another would get to them and they would die. And the fact is that infanticide wasn't even outlawed in Roman law until 375 A.D., almost 400 years after this letter was written. And then it wasn't very effective because a father had absolute authority over his household and he sort of called the shots. Think of Herod's slaughter, threatened with the coming Messiah. What does he do? Two and under, kill him. Kill them all. Doesn't want anything to take over his reign. So you could just say, at a minimum, the disciples are merely looking out for the best interests of Jesus and the efficacy of his ministry. They don't get the big picture. They won't get it completely until the resurrection, but they know that Jesus is doing something big. They get glimpses and pieces, and every once in a while, they have an insight that they realize, oh yeah, Jesus is different from every other prophet that's come. And I'm sure at some point we'll make time for the children, but not now, not here, not today. But now we have a divine assessment of these very same children. Verse 14, and it's the right assessment because it's the divine assessment. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. But, when Jesus saw it, imagine again the scene, thousands of people, and he can hear the rejections. "Get away, stop, not now." Jesus perceives it. And now, but the verse begins. It's a shift. It's a change of perspective. Perspective. We go from fallible man to the infallible God-man. And now he chimes in on what's happening here. And it says that he saw the rebuking and he was indignant. Now, indignant, this is the only time that that word is used in the New Testament. And it means angry, displeased, cause of much grief. The word here is expressing a great disturbance in Jesus' heart on what he is seeing before him. The reaction serves to highlight the severity of the action that the disciples even seem to be oblivious to. And Jesus then says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. Don't hinder, don't prevent, don't forbid. The children access to me. Now the tense that's being used here is saying, and not just today, fellas. Every other time from now on, do not hinder the children from coming to me. Because after all, Christ is the one who determines who comes to him, both physically, both spiritually. And why not hinder? What is it about this particular passage here? Well, Jesus goes on to say, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. That is an astounding pronouncement. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, sphere of God's rule, the central message of Matthew, Mark, and Luke internally begins in this world through repentance and belief. Externally is consummated when Christ returns and establishes his royal reign, his royal throne that is rightly his he says, don't hinder. Far beyond merely stressing their right to an audience with Christ. In the presence of Pharisees, religious leaders, and thousands of adults, Jesus is calling out these little children and saying, theirs is heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Now that's a staggering rebuke if you are a Pharisee. You've devoted your life to following the Torah, to know the scriptures, to live a works-oriented righteousness. And now, This prophet says that it's them who are going to inherit the kingdom and not you? I've studied my whole life. I've tried to follow the law to a T, and it's this two year old kid who's going to heaven before me? Well, the statement is further expounded in the next verse. The wrong assessment, the right assessment, and here's the crux of the whole passage right here in verse 15. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He starts off by using the word truly. Truly, uh, translated as amen, emphasis, solemn declaration, oath formula, surely or certainly. The preceding words that are going to come out of Jesus' mouth are to be noted and heeded. Heeded stop what you're doing put your book down put your stuff down look at me listen carefully and Jesus is the only one in the New Testament who uses this opening remark and it's only fitting because as we learned in Revelation 3.14 it says that and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation amen because he's the authority on everything that he says Everything that Jesus says must be noted and heeded. He's the authority on every matter, from heaven to hell, from the eternal to the temporal, from the world of academia and philosophy to the world of business and commerce. If Jesus speaks, he is by definition the authority. And here's the key within that verse. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever means anyone. Anyone. Anyone in attendance, whoever out there in first century Judaism or Greco-Roman world who will not heed this, you don't go to heaven. 21st century America, whoever hears this and does not heed it, you're not going to heaven. And he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God. Notice they didn't say whoever attains the kingdom of God, whoever acquires the kingdom of God, whoever purchases the kingdom of God, but rather receives, receive being a passive action. You receive a gift. You don't go buy a gift. You don't go acquire a gift. You don't accomplish a gift. It's given to you. It's the same like when Abraham received the promises of God. God's the one that made them, backed them, validated them. Abraham simply accepts them, trusts them, acts on them. Abraham did nothing to make those promises a reality other than just submitting himself to God. And the similar thought is being communicated here in this verse. And he says, like a child. Jesus used this term a lot, like, comparing the kingdom of God, saying it's like a mustard seed, it's like this, it's like that. It's an introduction to a comparison. And Jesus would use it time and time again as he taught his disciples and the crowds that would come to him. And like a child, to keep that thought in your mind, now go back to the introduction. Go back to some of those things we looked at, some of those things that happen to children and why it happens. Go back to the neglect, the abuse, the revenge, the sexual exploitation, the pre-birth murder, the post-birth murder, and think about what made them a perfect victim. They were naive, they were defenseless, they were dependent. And that's what's inherent to small children. And Jesus is saying that's what's inherent to those who go to heaven. They must be naive, they must be defenseless, they must be dependent. Now this would be a slap in the face of first century uh, time here because according to Judaism, a child was a person who was not even able to fulfill the law. Judaism being works righteousness, if a children goes to heaven, you know what that means? The connection between act and reward is ruptured. How can a five-year-old go to heaven? He can't follow the commandments. He can't follow the ceremonial washings, the laws of the Sabbath. But it's interesting because you would have thought that the Pharisees would not have been too surprised that Jesus is driving them and pointing them to small children, to newborns, to infants, to understand the kingdom of God. In fact, it was a very sim- metaphor, similar metaphor that Jesus used, that God used when he spoke about the birth of the nation Israel. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, and we're going to look at those first five verses, in particular verses four and five. And this is what the Lord God says through his prophet Ezekiel. I'll start at verse four. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you but you were cast out on the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. What did Israel offer to God that he would choose them? You've barely entered this world and you're just waiting for your death on an open field. What did you do, Israel, that garnered my attention that I should choose you over any other people group in this world? Spiritually speaking, it laid unwanted as a female baby, which was a common practice in that day. Covered in blood, umbilical cord uncut, nothing to shield it from the elements. Now, Apparently, one of the practices in synagogues is to sort of pass over that passage when you get there and not read it. And I suppose you can understand why if you're part of a synagogue. It's not very good for PR. It doesn't really portray a very good, high, noble picture of you when you read it. But yet, that's what God says. And so, this, this, this child in this field would be helpless, defenseless, totally dependent on the mercy and compassion of someone else. And that would be God. And the same holds true for salvation. That same thing holds true. When God sees us, he does not see a valiant, ethical, moral person who has strived and persevered and and scaled the, the ladder of spiritual success. No. What he sees is a newborn baby, unable to do anything for him or herself. We offer nothing to God. He extends his mercy and compassion to us, not because of our achievement, but because of divine accomplishment. And this morning's reading, the rich young ruler, that was the problem for the rich young ruler. He didn't understand that growing up in Judaism. He came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Ball's in my court, isn't it, Jesus? What do I gotta do? Tell me. Obey commands, I did that. Jesus. I did that. What else? And you almost find that the the young rich ruler's problem wasn't that he needed to add anything. It was that he needed to subtract. He was not defenseless. His defense was his money and his wealth, preserving him to have to consider the true nature of who he was and where he stood spiritually. And then Jesus, at the end there in verse 27, sums it up, bottom lines, all of salvation and says this, salvation is impossible for humanity impossible for man nobody gets there unless i intercede unless i do something so be wary of people who would t- uh, look to teach you or to point you in a direction other than this in 1984 in the mid 80s robert shuler was real big and he wrote a book called the new Form- the new reformation the self-esteem gospel. And he published these books and he sent them out free to pastors across America trying to start this new reformation, trying to reevaluate how we do ministry. And in an interview, a letter with, to Christianity Today, Schuler wrote this, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude uncouth and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Now, this is a man who was mentored and discipled by Norman Vincent Peale, who wasn't a Christian at all. He was a positive attitude writer. And Shuler would go on to influence people in our generation today, Bill Hybels and others. And so be careful when people want to somehow portray salvation as if the ball's in your court and you just need to do X, Y, and Z and you need to try hard enough and it's going to happen. Because what Jesus is saying, it's the very opposite. You don't actively go after it. You submit by receiving it. And this isn't an isolated passage that speaks of this. In Matthew 18 in verses 1 to 3 and verse 10, Jesus drives home the same point. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put them in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. This was a big deal. This was a loaded four verses that Mark inserted in his gospel. And not only does it have spiritual implications, it it has practical implications. And there's a temporal lesson in verse 16 that we see. And it says, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Imagine that. The throngs of people by now have been silenced Because Jesus said, listen and heed to what I'm about to tell you. And now, come. Come to the little children, to the infant, to the newborn, to the toddler. Come to me now. And he's holding multiple children. And they came to him in his arms. Imagine that scene. Imagine you being in Jesus' arms. Talk about the safest place in the world. Talk about the best seat in the house. What greater joy can there be? And there for all to see and behold, the adults, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the thrill seekers, they're just watching Jesus now pause and take time to be with these little children. And the masses can watch and they can learn. And it goes on to say that Jesus blessed them, laying his hands on them. Bless, the verb form here, a thorough, a fervent blessing. This wasn't a simple, a normal, run-of-the-mill blessing. It was almost as if intentionally Jesus made a thorough blessing in this time and and scene right here. A hearty hand on their heads, a hearty long prayer on behalf of these little ones. And we here, the beloved at Pacific Hope, we have the opportunity to, to extend that love of Christ to children as well. We have the opportunity to love children that are part of this congregation. We have the same spirit like Jesus. Jesus loved children. Jesus made time for children. So should we. Second, we should study these children that we see in our midst. Study the littlest ones because the more you learn about them, the more you will learn about yourself. And the better you understand them, the better you'll understand salvation. And teach the children. These are the, 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 best, the best ones to go after. Their hearts are soft. Their minds are sponges. They will believe you no matter what you tell them. You hold power in your hands to, to either lie to them or to give them truth that will bring about salvation. If you ask me, I believe the best teacher should be in the children's ministry. We somehow have this perception that you go in the children's, they sort of get one class of teachers and then the adults get the other. Well, the fact is, is that many of us came to Christ much later in life. And think of all the sanctification that has needed to take place in your life as you've repented of sins time and time again, working out memories, trying to put to death these things that once had a grip on you. The children don't have that. Think of what you can spare them, the years and decades of torment and trying to Become a slave to Christ and righteousness and not your own sinful desires. I know statistics can prove anything. I know that and I, as I share this with you, I'm mindful of that. But a while back, a doctor by the name of Jim Slack did some sort of a study to try to understand the, the age breakdown that it, when it comes to salvation. When do people come to Christ? At what point in their life do they come to Christ? Christ. And this is what he discovered. 19 to 20 children become Christians by the age of 25. 19 out of 20 by the age of 25. That only leaves one after that. And he goes on to say that at age 25, it's one in 10,000 who become Christians. At 35, it's one in 50,000. At 45, 1 in 200,000. At 55, 1 in 300,000. And at 75, 1 in 700,000 people bow the knee to Christ and accept him as Lord and Savior. What is that? As we go on, the longer we harden ourselves to the gospel preaching, to the truth that there is a Savior and that we need a Savior, your heart becomes harder, your heart becomes harder until you no longer respond at all. But when you're a young child, Tell me, I'm all ears. Tell me, I'll listen to you, absolutely, teacher Alex, absolutely. And some people may say, okay, yeah, but how valid is a small child's profession of faith anyways? I mean, you know, if a five-year-old tells me they accepted Christ, ah, come on, time will tell, right? Time will tell. I like what Charles Spurgeon said on that topic. He said, I will say broadly that I have more confidence in the spiritual life of the children that I have received into this church than I have in the spiritual condition of the adults thus received. I will go further than that and say that I have usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in the child converts than in the man converts. I will even astonish you still more by saying that I have sometimes met with a deeper spiritual experience in the children of 10 and 12 than I have in certain persons of 50 or 60. Spurgeon knew a thing or two about ministry and about preaching, about evangelism. And that was the pronouncement he made. That he would have a deeper theological uh, conversation, a more edifying time with a 10-year-old than he would with a 50-year-old in his church. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse nine. And again, we're gonna see that this This truth that you need to come to the cross naive, defenseless, dependent is not an isolated passage of scripture. Jesus drives home that point time and time again throughout his ministry here on earth. And this is another case of it. Luke 8 verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So his audience are the ones that are like, Yeah, of all the views out there, of all the false religions out there, I chose the right one. It was a tough decision. I wrestled, but I got there. Now I'm living it out. I'm not like these guys. I'm not like those people there. And This is what Jesus tells them. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you A sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee came as one who was self-righteous. The tax collector came as one who was self-bankrupt. You didn't have to convince the tax collector that he needed the savior. He knew it. You weren't gonna have to argue with him. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. What makes for the ultimate combination of weakness in the kingdom of man makes for the essential prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God. The very weaknesses people exploit, look down upon, marginalize, trivialize, are the very things that God looks to and says, that's what I want. That's what I need to see in you. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are far far higher than ours. And spiritually, those that don't know this are in a far graver place than any child who's ever been exploited on the face of this earth. Because even in the worst scenario, a child physically, his torment will end and he will go and be with his master and Lord. But someone who spiritually denies this reality and eternity is waiting for him where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the worm does not die. How do you see yourself this morning? Because the world, and sometimes even the church, will stress you. Will lift you up. Will tell you how good and holy and noble you are. And all that you can accomplish with a little umph. In fact, 50% of people polled believe that that statement, God helps those who help themselves, is actually found in the Bible. When I go to Starbucks, Starbucks tells me that I help preserve rainforests, that I'm playing a role in helping people halfway around the world have a better life, that I'm recycling like crazy. I've saved like 10,000 trees this last month, (laughs) Starbucks is telling me. And it's one thing when 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 a secular business tells you that, But it's another thing when those that are supposed to be ministers of the gospel begin to tell you that. ah, sin. ah, repentance. That's passe. That's passe. Come on, who's going to listen to that? Instead, we're going to be your motivational, moral coach for the week. You're going to go out there. You're going to hit those business goals this week. You're going to be a better husband this week. You'll be a better wife. And then come back next week and hear it again and... I'll go home to my $10 million house on the beach. Keep that money coming. We're the problem. He's the solution. We can do nothing. He does it all. It's not human achievement, as MacArthur says. It's all divine accomplishment. All of it. Salvation is monergistic. There's one party involved. Not two. Two. Augustus Toplady wrote a hymn, The Rock of Ages, in 1776. And the lyrics really shed light on this truth. The lyrics go, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. For I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And for those of us that are saved here this morning, we have no reason to boast. If we boast, we boast in Christ alone we speak to an unbeliever, we preach Christ in grace, seasoned with salt. And so what will you do with this teaching of Jesus in this passage? Chances are there are some of you in here who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. Charles Spurgeon went to church his whole life, read scripture, prayed, but it wasn't until one day when he was going to church, the weather was so bad that it diverted him, he had to take a different route, went into another church, and the main preacher didn't even show up that night, so a layman went up and simply quoted one verse out of Isaiah. Look to him and you'll be saved. Look to him and you'll be saved. No heavy exegesis, no seminary training, but it was finally at that moment that Spurgeon got it. And the rest is history. But if you don't know the Lord, remember, he is a merciful, merciful savior. Jesus says that he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. You know why he didn't come to condemn the world? It's already condemned. Jesus doesn't have to condemn anything. He came to save And he says that I wish that none would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. Back in 2007, I was preparing to go to seminary. We had made the decision to go and um, was tying up loose ends at work. And I had remembered that there was a coworker. I had a project together with him. And, um, you know, we kind of got on the topic of Christianity and tried to find out where he was spiritually. And he said, no, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but but things that he said and did didn't line up, and it caused concern in my heart for him. And so on August 17th, Friday of 2007, I sent him this email. Hello, Tom. I'm glad I had a chance to meet you and work alongside you on this last project. I appreciate our brief chat on Christianity and wanted to pass along the article I mentioned a couple weeks back. It articulates well the significance and evidence of being born again. May this be both challenging and encouraging to you in your spiritual walk of faith. Should you have any questions, please email me. And that was the 17th. That was my last day in the office. And after that, that next day, we drove up to LA and began seminary. Now in Lord's grace, he provided my old job back to me after coming back to San Diego. And so back in June when I started work, I opened up my Outlook and every folder I had was still there. Every project folder, every email folder I had, And I even had new emails in my inbox from three years ago. That's kind of odd. And I got an email from Tom. And on Monday, August 20th, Tom writes, Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate the article and will give it thought. Wishing you the best in your future work. Signed, Tom. Now, three months later, we're up in L.A. And we catch wind of some Fierce fires in San Diego County. And then I come across this article on the Union Tribune, dated November 9, 2007. Thomas and Richard Varshak were driving away from their home in Potrero when four firefighters in engine 3387 saw them through the smoke and flames. Thomas, a 52-year-old geological engineer, was in his white pickup. His 15-year-old son, Richard, a wrestler at Valhalla High School, was on his ATV. Thomas pointed down the dirt road and asked the firefighters if they could check on his home, which was less than a mile away. He also told captain, that, fire, that particular fire captain that at least one of his neighbors hadn't evacuated yet. The captain told the Varshaks to get out of the area immediately, but instead they turned around and followed the fire engine towards their home. It was the first in a series of decisions made in the span of 30 minutes that would leave Thomas Varshak dead and everyone else severely burned. And then the article goes on to give more details about what transpired in that period of time, about how the 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 fire chief and everybody there said, get out of here, go. And he resisted. And then a helicopter finally had to descend because now the fire engine and the Varshaks were all stuck in this area with flames all around them. And finally, when it was all said and done and the fires stopped, you could go out there and you saw this fire engine burnt to a crisp and Thomas Varshak's body fried in front of the truck. Now, if Thomas Varshak knew that he literally had three more months to live, maybe that article I had sent him on Are You Truly Born Again would have been much more important to him. And here's the point, nobody in this room really fully embraces and understands death. No one really wakes up one morning saying, today's my day. The culture will do everything to convince you that you will not die. That you will sort of go on living in perpetua- perpetuity. And with this right cream, this right drug, you'll, you'll look young for a thousand years. But ten out of ten people die. Die. And perhaps somebody's thinking out there, yeah, you're just trying to scare me, Anthony. I've heard that before, kind of scare me into having to consider my mortality and make a rash decision for Christ. No. I'm trying to terrify you. I'm trying to mortify you to consider the fact that you will die at some point and you don't know when that time's coming. And in the dark recesses of your life, when no one is looking, when their lights are out and the doors are closed, you know you are guilty. You know why you are. You need a savior. You may deceive the people around you. You may even think you deceive yourself into thinking you don't need a savior. But when you're honest, when push comes to shove, just like Floyd Landis, after three years of denying any wrongdoing, comes out and says, "No, I'm guilty. I hired a multi-million dollar in law firm to say I was innocent. I wrote a book. I went on a campaign across the country to raise money to, to vindicate me." I've lost my wife, my family, my house, my fortune, everything. And when I sit in my 1,100 square foot home and hem it, and I'm all alone, the reality of my spiritual condition, probably unbeknownst to him yet, but at least the reality of what he was doing, deceiving the world around him, becomes evidently and clear. And so what did he do? He finally confessed. He was tired, the monkey on the back. Yeah, I drugged. I doped. I did but I think some of us are sort of like Floyd Landis. But instead of hiring a multi-million dollar law firm, we hire the the, the personalities of our culture to defend us, to prove that we are moral and good people, good enough to go to heaven as is. We don't need to change. We read the books, we listen to the programs, we listen to the radio. We articulate the arguments that people like Richard Dawkins say so eloquently. But when the lights are out, the door's closed, no one's looking. I would venture to say that if you haven't repented yet, you know you need a savior. The question will become, will you like Floyd Landis come to that realization before you die? Because Floyd may have done it in terms of cycling, I don't know where he is spiritually. But some of us have to do that spiritually. For you don't know how long you will live. But Christ is merciful merciful. He's patient, he's long suffering and he will not reject anyone who comes to him but you gotta come as a small child. Naive, defenseless, dependent and you will be born again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that it's so much about the least. It's so much about the things that come the hardest to us that you use to teach the most profound lessons in scripture. And Father God, I pray that the truth of this word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would be embedded in our hearts. And that for those of us that do know you, Lord God, that we would glory in you and the cross and in what you have accomplished, Lord. And I pray for someone here today who has yet to know you, Father, that in your mercy you would soften their hearts, and that they would not leave here before speaking to someone about their soul, and that they might leave vindicated they might die to self, that they might live for eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.